Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Familial illicit drug misuse is a rapidly growing issue for Australian children. Reports suggest that one in seven Australian children may be living in a household where one or more family members are misusing illicit drugs. As schools are generally a consistent presence in the lives of most Australian children, teachers are typically key people in provisioning for their education, safety, care and well-being. This week's podcast guest, Dr Wendy Goff, believes educators play a crucial role in development of health prevention strategies that target the support of children who are impacted on a familial illicit drug misuse. Wendy's experience and qualifications span education and psychology and provide a good basis for understanding the complexities of adult behaviour and how adults come together, including how these behaviours and actions shape the experiences, health and development of children. Her research is situated in schools and is focused on engaging teachers in a collaborative sense-making of health and education-based issues. Wendy's research explores adult relationships and partnerships and their impact on children's learning, well-being and development. She holds membership to the NAADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals, the Victorian Early Childhood Research Consortium and the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth. Stay tuned as Wendy takes us through how teachers can be better prepared and supported to assist with intervention and prevention, as well as a number of sustainable school-based secondary health prevention strategies. Hello, Wendy, and thanks very much for joining me on the show today and sharing your journey and all the things that you're up to with our listeners. Thanks very much. Great to be here, Sam. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. So tell us, Wendy, give the listeners a bit of a background on your professional history, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So my professional history is sort of tied to my personal history. I grew up in a household. I'm the oldest of three children. My youngest brother really had a hard time at school. So he had difficulty at school and uh, was suspended several times and ended up being expelled. And a result of that, that process was that he sort of fell into a wrong crowd of people. So, Wendy, where did you grow up? Sorry. I grew up in Canberra. Oh, great. Okay. Gives me some confidence. Yeah. So, yeah. And he, um, he, always, he, he knows that I speak about, um, uh, so I never speak. I just thought, I thought I'd just throw in, I never speak about our family or my brother's addiction which I'll talk about in a minute without his permission so yeah so so he was expelled from school fell into the wrong crowd and ended up with drug addiction 
And that drug addiction started when he was about 18 years of age and it's followed him into his adulthood. So he's now in his early 40s and still battling addiction. So that was sort of the context from which my personal interest in this area stemmed. As my brother grew older, he met a partner. She too battles with addiction. They've started a family and there are nine children. So wow. it's a complex, it's a complex household. And family services, uh, Department of Human Services have been in contact with uh, the family and supported the family quite a bit. But Myself, I started with a Bachelor of Education and uh, went into schools and started really thinking about my nieces and nephews and their experiences in school. And I found that when I was in school working as a classroom teacher, a lot of the time when addiction was brought up in the staff room, where the Department of Human Services involvement with the family was brought up, there was sort of a judgment and sort of a, a negative. Taboo. Yeah, it, w- it was a subject that we knew that was happening, but you can't speak about that. And, and therefore, it's not the, the teacher's job to actually support children or families. Mm. And my brother had, because of his terrible experiences with school, he never um, came to the school when something went wrong and made the school aware of, of what had sort of happened in the home life before the school day. So and we've gone through some terrible things as a family. So attempted suicide and then the next morning, because everybody's, uh, the adults are in quite distress, the children have just gone to school the next day and nobody knows what they've gone through the day before. So I found in my family, and I don't think it's, I don't know if it's typical for every family, but the the literature that I've engaged with sort of suggests that it might be. I found with my family, because it is such a complex household and there is a, a quite a fear of the children being removed from care, that the family tends to close ranks around the children. And, and for me as a teacher, that was really difficult because I'm a mandated reporter. So I was making reports and my immediate family weren't aware of it. So it was quite complex. So they were at the school you were teaching at? They were at the school that I was teaching at, wow. yeah. It was quite difficult and it was something that I couldn't, I felt as though I was silenced in that space because educators didn't want to hear about it. Yeah. And for me, that sort of was it was troubling because I thought we, as educators, they are big influences in the ch- in children's lives. So they spend a lot of time with young children, and yeah. and so when I moved out of the school system, I actually ended up going to social welfare work and thought that that's where I'd find my niche and try to build some support for these children and change this sort of culture of the school system. But it, it was I was faced with a similar dilemma. So that was probably, it was the impetus for my PhD studies and my further studies. So I, I then went on and did a degree in psychology and then just to gain some further understanding about my own experiences and, and what I'd witnessed and then engage with PhD. And so that's how I've sort of come into this, this space. Is it, is it very common that people go from education into psychology and, and mix those two up? Yeah, it is. It is actually because yeah. I think that as a classroom teacher, you you really want to get some further depth around the children that you're working with, and whether that might be from a learning or a behavioural expe- perception or perspective, 
it's, it's often a pathway that uh, educators follow. Mm. Yeah, and the statistics say that you have here that one in seven Australian children may be living in a household where one or more family members are misusing illicit drugs. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's it's, pretty and scary. Absolutely it is. So I feel as though even just looking at the statistics on child protection, so 41% of children that come into contact with child protection are generally from a household where one or, one or more parents are misusing drugs. Wow. So. Yeah, they're quite startling statistics in Australia. And when I think about my own family and my nieces and nephews, as I said, we've had some pretty horrific things happen in the evening and those children have been packed up and sent to school the next day. So, And, and the school's not made aware of it because there's that, I guess, that, that fear that if they are made aware of it, then the ch- children will be removed and placed into foster care, So, which isn't a realistic perspective to have, but it is a perspective that my family has had. What do you think, I mean, if kids, I mean, obviously it must be really traumatic for them and so confusing, but are we talking about, when we're talking about illicit drug use, are we talking about just concealing it, high-functioning drug use, um, sweeping it under, or are we talking about very public in front of their kids? It, it, It can be both, Sam. So there are times when my brother has spoken to me and said there have been times where they've been not in a good way, not feeling well and really needing to take drugs and they've just collapsed on the floor and did it in front of the children. And there are other times when it's just been hidden. So I guess it depends on circumstance. It depends on what's happening at the time. It depends on how the the person is you who is using is feeling at that time. What are some of the signs that, I mean, how does this impact the kids? How do you, how do you know this? Generally, children, so, so children that come into school, a lot of them have, we call it, have been parentified. So an example of that would be in my nieces and nephews experience, there are nine children and the three older children have really taken on the carer role or the parent role within the family. So they make themselves responsible for getting the younger children to school. Uh, They make sure that uh, the family is fed and whether that be calling someone in the family uh, for food, in the wider family for food, if there's nothing in the cupboards, or whether that just be making use of the food that's in the cupboards. So a sign for those children would be uh, sort of like a, they, they tend to withdraw from their friendship groups. So they're uh, not able to engage in after-school activities. They're not able to go to their friend's house for a play dates like in any other child might have that option. And they actually don't want to. And my older nephews, speaking to them, they've shared stories where they've been quite concerned about their parents. So they've woken up in the morning and mum hasn't gotten out of bed and dad hasn't gotten out of bed. So they've got the younger children to school, got them all packed up, taken them to school, and then they've gone home to check on mum and dad and make sure that they're okay and look after them for the day. So absence from school is another pretty telling sign. Well, how old are the oldest children we're talking about? Like 12, 13? Are they sort of 14, 15? They're 15, 16-year-olds oh, wow. now. So, but, but that's been a pattern of behaviour. They're, they're born very close together. So even in the primary school years, the older children have taken on that parenting role. So, And how does this impact them? I mean, I don't want to 
you know, spill out the obvious yeah. ones, but can you describe to us what sort of the long-lasting impacts, the short-term impacts and the long-term impacts on this? Yeah, the short-term impacts, of course, are disengagement from school and, and the potential of the cycle continuing. And that's a huge implication for lifelong trajectories. The long-term impact is it's, it's ongoing sustained trauma and ongoing state of stress, which then has implications for adolescent and adult mental health and well-being. So there, there are huge implications there. It's, it's really an issue we have to address and, and we have to do something about. Talking to my brother and also observing him in action, so to speak, there, there are lots of signs that we sort of see emerge when he's not in a good, not in a good state of mind. So he often becomes very withdrawn, but sometimes he can be over, overcompensate. So he can, he can look you directly in the eye and really intensely carry out a conversation with you. And that's another sort of telltale sign. It's one of the two that sort of come together. But really in relation to the children, the main behaviour that is seen is that they tend to, there's a lot of overcompensation. So a lot of tall tales that are told in relation to achievements. There's a lot of tall tales that are told in relation to what the family are doing. That The family do try to, my, my brother and his partner love their children. And I have no doubt in my mind that any adult with a child, any adult with an addiction and with children mm-hmm. loves their children. There's no doubt in my mind that they love their children. But at times that aren't so good, the children don't become the priority. So the priority is ma- making sure that you're okay and that things are going well. So an example of that would be not being able to source drugs and spending the evening in the car driving around trying to find somebody that can supply them drugs. And whether the children all be in the car at that time, that's not, that's not a thought that crosses their mind. Wow. Well, you just, I mean, when you don't see this stuff day in, day out, you just, you can just go through life completely unaware of what is going on with this stuff, can't you? Absolutely. And and you know what? And that's, that's the, I think that's the big thing that I've noticed with teachers. So because that lifestyle is so far removed from many classroom teachers' own lifestyles, they find it difficult to fathom that this is something that actually goes on behind the doors. And, and children come to school and they're, they're tired and they're exhausted and, and they're not allowed to tell that they've been in the car all night with mum and dad trying to seek out a source for drugs. They, they, they can't say that. They're not allowed to share that. And often the, the children are told it's really important that you don't share that. And the school find out about that, then you might be removed and placed into another family. Yeah, so there's the pressure on the kids to make sure that you don't tattletale on, on their parents. Absolutely. Um, but then at what point do teachers sort of feel like, well, you know, where does it – I know there's a duty of care there somewhere, but, I mean, at what point does it impede on personal lives and getting involved in stuff that goes beyond their skill sets? Yeah. Well, that's the problem, Sam. It does go beyond their skill set. So that's where sort of my research fits. And because teachers have spent so much of the working day with children, and often they're working with children from households where drug addiction is an issue, 
Uh, they're aware of that. They're often working with child protection and other support services, but they actually haven't been trusted or given the skills to actually support children and families properly. So I talk about all the negative things around my brother and his partner and their children, but they're also positive things as well. So one of the most wonderful experiences that my brother has had uh, with the schooling system is a classroom teacher who was teaching two of the children uh, in one year. And one of the children bought to school some artwork that my brother had had created. And Graham is an exceptional artist. He's an exceptional artist, especially when he's high. And he, he, he creates these intricate artworks that are just really impressive. So one of the little boys uh, had bought to, to school the artwork and showed it for show and tell. And the classroom had a courtyard off the classroom doors and they were hoping to paint the courtyard. So that classroom teacher actually spoke to the principal of the school and uh, they approached my brother and asked him if he would do the artwork in that courtyard. And so he did that. He did that under supervision, but it was a real opening for him because he'd had such a negative experience with the schooling system because of his addiction. It was somebody seeing a strength that he had and tapping into that strength and not judging him, knowing about the addiction. And the principal would come and supervise him when he was in there painting, but she wouldn't do that in a punitive way. She would, she would sit there with him and just talk. So she was learning about the family as well and just went that extra mile. And for the children to have their dad paint that artwork and see him in the role of perhaps other families who engage with the school. So the mum who comes down and listens to reading, the dad who comes down and helps with the reading rotations or the mathematics rotations. It was, it was just a really positive experience for the family. So I think that teachers have a potential to actually make a real difference, not only to children who are from households where one or more parents are misusing drugs, but also to the families. My brother, as I said, I talk about the negatives, but I could call him if I was in trouble tomorrow and say, I'm in a lot of trouble here. Can you come and help me? And he'd do everything in his power to help me. He's a, he's a great person. He's a great sure. fellow. I want to get onto that as well, but before I do, if we just talk about, obviously the teachers, some might say they're already under a lot of pressure with all the stuff they have to do. At what point do you think we're just adding to their list of things that they need to find time with a lack of resources in a lot of instances to then say, well, on top of this, can you also train you up for this and look out for that? I mean, there's a lot of stuff now that we're really putting on the teachers. What's your thoughts around that? Sam, that's something that I've uh, sort of grappled with myself and, and coming from a teaching perspective, being a classroom teacher myself, teachers are already doing this work, but they're doing this work without the skills and the knowledge necessary to actually engage with it effectively. So teachers are already working with children from households where parents are misusing drugs. They're doing it on a daily basis and probably spending a lot more time with them than other support services such as child protection, any other support services that are in place with the family. So Con in my or unconsciously, do you think they're working with them? Like they're aware of the situation or you think they're, okay. Yeah, in my experience, they've got an inkling that something's not right okay. uh, at the minimum, but most teachers do, they, they do know. 
that they're working with children who are experiencing some complex challenges at home. But the problem is they're not actually, so, so I work in teacher education and, and the teacher education courses that I'm involved in, we touch on, you know, children from complex backgrounds and we touch on these little things and, and give some strategies and skills within that teacher education program, but actually work embedded strategies and skills and professional development, I think is, is something that should follow teachers out. And if they're already working with children from these backgrounds and these homes, then we sort of have an obligation to support them. And in my research, I, I, I use methodology called design-based research, and I really like design-based research because as a researcher, uh, it recognises work with schools rather than on schools. So I'm, I'm researching with schools, I'm not researching on schools. So, and, and what I usually do is use, a, use the evidence space so, so this, this study, my most recent study, I've used the evidence base to create some adult picture storybooks and the adult picture storybooks give different scenarios of children's experiences in households where, where their parents are misusing drugs. And I use that as a springboard to talk to schools about the issues that they're experiencing at school and some of the strategies that they're already using. And it's a really it's a really nice way of working with schools because I'm not going in there and saying, look, I don't know what your context is, but this is what the evidence says and we're going to implement that and we're going to make that fit into your context, which is going to increase your workload and put a lot of pressure on you. And But it's really worthwhile because you have to do this and we have to make sure that children are supported. So I, I go in there and say, look, this is the issue. I believe that a lot of teachers are already working in this space and nine times out of 10, the principal will say to me, oh yeah, all the time. You know, we've got a number of families that I can talk to you about. And, and But going in there with this notion of, of saying, look, this is the evidence space. We know that you've got some families that you're already working with. How can we support them better? Mm. And supporting educators that way to actually embed strategies into their everyday life or everyday teaching experiences, I think is a much more sustainable approach than trying to come in with a, a pre-made program that uh, then educators have to go out of their way and exactly what you said, Sam, add to their already you know, chaotic teaching lives and, and all those different things that they need to incorporate. I think that this approach enables schools to organically, that, that they're introduced to the literature base, they have an understanding of what that literature base says, they have an understanding of best practice, and then they look at their particular context and, and then work to embed that in their context. What are the outcomes that we're going for here? Obviously, we want to help educate and train the teachers, but what's the end goal? Is it to help child services? Is it to actually work with the kids so that they understand what's going on at home and it's not, not their fault and or to get have more attention and turn up to school more regularly? Like what is, what as far as the children are concerned, what's, what outcome are we gunning for with this training and education? I think it's all those things that you, you mentioned, Sam, but, but mostly, so in Australia at the moment, services that are designed to 
around addiction and mental health and wellbeing tend to target the person that has the addiction in the household. So there's no explicit structure for the children and well, there is for the family as a whole, but it's based on that, that prioritisation of that person who is suffering from the addiction. So really in Australia, we don't have any viable supports that just target the support of children. And, and that's not, that doesn't mean necessarily working with children to highlight what's going on at home. Most children living in these households, they're aware of what's going on at home. They, they know exactly what's going on at home and particularly as they, they get older into secondary school, they're, they're quite aware of, of what's going on at home. It's actually just to make sure that support, adequate supports are put into place for the safety and the care and the well-being of the children. So that's, for me, that's the main goal, the big picture. And what does that look like? Is that like, well, if you need food, if you need somewhere to go at night time, if you need extra time for assignments, is, is this is this what we're what we're looking at or is it more lifts to yeah. them from school? Yeah, it, it's absolutely all all of that, but it's also it's a school actually knowing not necessarily having to provide all of those things for children, but actually being able to have the understanding and knowledge to tap into support services that can perhaps provide those things, can provide some respite and knowing that and having those support services at their fingertips. I'm I'm a big believer that that schools, their expertise lies in education, Mm -hmm. the education of children. And you can be argued that education is a holistic process that looks after the person as well. However, I don't think that teachers have the expertise to actually provide those sorts of things that you said. And I don't, nor do I think that they should be providing those things, but I think that they should have the expertise and understanding to be able to know where they can source those supports for children and put them into place. Yeah. And, and a big one would be even just their mental state, wouldn't it? So to, to cause like you mentioned, these, these children are probably suffering a lot of that isolation, closed up, can't talk to people, embarrassed a little bit as well. Yeah. So, so just trying to help them understand because they'd be highly confused. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also how can you concentrate on learning? when when you, you've got all this other stuff going on or mm. been driving around in the car all night um, and you're exhausted, how can you concentrate on on learning? Yeah, it's 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 really important, Sam. And for me, it's as I said, you know, in the beginning it's and I and I've spoken about all the way through, it's it's really personal as well yeah. as professional for me because I've I've seen it on both sides. I've sat on both sides and it's it's really tricky. I can I can definitely see your passion about this, and it's on one hand, it's obviously would be tough for you to go through this um, to watch this at arm's length, even. But the fact that you're getting in and you're helping and creating a difference is something that's really admirable. Tell me, from a family point of view, so when you were watching your brother going through this when you were younger, how what's the impact on you, uh, your parents? I mean, this it must be tough. 
It's been it's been horrific, Sam, and and I can tell you stories. Oh my gosh! Uh, so I I live in Victoria now, and I made that it was a conscious decision to move, and and it was based on those experiences. So so my family we're here in Victoria, and with no ad- additional support family. So that's been one implication for myself, and and that's tried tried to escape that sort of situation. But having said that, then you carry the guilt of not being there. And being the oldest in the family, there's a lot of guilt that you carry along with you. But we've had some like really horrific experiences as a family. I remember working at the school. I was in my second year of teaching, so trying to make a really good impression. And my brother lived in the same suburb as, and, the, and the children went to the school. And I was teaching a prep class and none of the families turned up to pick up their kids. And so I rang through to the office and I said, it's three o'clock and no one's here to pick up their children. What's going on? And the, the front office lady said, oh, look, I'll follow up. Just keep them there. Don't let anyone leave and I'll follow up and see what's going on. And then she came back to me and said, oh, there's a man with a machete walking up and down the street threatening to cut his partner's head off. Wow. And as soon as she said that, I knew it was my brother. Wow. So here I was in this situation where I had to pretend that it wasn't my brother that the families were coming and saying, oh, my gosh, did you hear about that crazy man? And having to act surprised, but at the same time in my heart thinking, you know, please don't be him, please don't be him, but actually knowing that it was him. Yeah. And as it relates to your your brother now, I mean, obviously he's 40 or so now that you mentioned. Yeah. Is it continually hard to see this happening as he – growing up and still battling this disease? Absolutely, absolutely. And he's a beautiful person. That's and, and I think that's what I want people to know as well. We're not just talking about addicts. We're talking about people. We're yeah. talking about people. We're talking about brothers. We're talking about sisters. We're talking about parents. We're talking about cousins, daughters. We're, we're talking about people. And I think that classroom teachers are often, our media doesn't portray people who have addictions in a positive light. And, and for me, that's really problematic. As a family, we thought that he would, we always thought that he would just grow out of the addiction. It sounds really crazy thinking that, but we just thought he would reach a stage and say, look, I've had enough, but but he hasn't. And he talks about it openly. It's sort of like our family as a whole, that I guess a lot of the drama that we experienced in the early days has sort of subsided a little bit now. And there's sort of an acceptance that this is part of who he is and, yeah. Has he sought help at some point along the journey and it's just not worked? Yeah. So, So in the very early stages of his addiction, Sam, and I often think back to this and the family talk about it often. So, so when his addiction first came to our, to the forefront, when we first were aware of it, he tried to commit suicide. So he tried to hang himself through the manhole of the house that he was living in and he was coming down. And so because I'm the oldest in the family, my mum telephoned me and said, look, I'm, I'm going to Graham's house. He's just called me. He's told me he's going to end his life. Can you please come and meet me there? And we called the ambulance and the police and they came as well. And we managed to, to get there in time, thankfully. And that day he broke down and said, I've, I've got a drug addiction. I need help. 
So I remember getting him in the car. Mum was distraught and I got him in the car and I drove him all the way to the hospital, which had a an addiction facility, a, a, a treatment facility attached to it. And I thought that I could just take him there and say, he needs help. Can you please help him? And that he would be booked in and he would go through rehabilitation. But he was actually, we were turned away. So they said to us, uh, for us to accept him into the, the rehabilitation service, he needs to be clean for at least a week. He needs to have a succession of appointments. And so, so we said, okay, yep, we'll do that. We'll do anything that we can. By that evening, he was looking to get on again. And then when he did, he didn't, he didn't want treatment. He was okay. Were there any other op- options that you had available? Like, are there any other? Well, Sam, we didn't know at the time because it was so new to yeah. us. Um, we, you know, I had a good life growing up, and and I've often thought, and Mum and Dad, I know that they carry a lot of guilt. So Mum blames herself. Mum and Dad always worked. We always had food in the cupboard. We always were well looked after. We had clean clothes. We had a good family life. But Mum took on a, a weekend job. Uh, for some extra income. So dad will look after us during the weekend. But she often blames herself for doing that. If I hadn't have taken that weekend job, maybe he would have behaved in school and he wouldn't have been expelled from school. And then maybe things would have been different. He wouldn't have an addiction. So, but you don't know what you don't know. And if it touches you for the first time as a family, you actually, you don't know. And, And because there's this taboo around this issue, it's really hard finding information. It's really hard finding support. Being at the school, I couldn't say, oh, my gosh, that's, I think that's my brother. Can I please go and make sure that he's okay? Yeah. Because you know, that had to be hidden. Yeah. I mean, it must, it must be tough and I, I, I can't relate to that, obviously, but it's just um, I'm sure there's plenty of other families as well, unfortunately, that are going through, the, through that experience as well. Sam, I used to hide it. I used to hide it. Even making the transition into the university setting, I I would hide my background because I thought that that was the right thing to do. I thought that these stories weren't stories that should be told. They were stories that were stories about our our family. We can't can't speak about these stories because then it puts our family in a negative light. People might wonder, you know, what happened to this child? Like what, do you know what I mean? So I I always hit it and I thought it was a weakness. But but as I've come, I'm in my 10th year of working in the university setting now and, and I feel like it's my strength. These stories are important. They need to be told. People need to be unsettled and and people need to know the realities of what addiction looks like, uh, what growing up in a household with somebody battling addiction looks like and also what families, what what are some of the things that, that go on? And as I spoke to you earlier about our family closing ranks around the children and this real fear that the family are going to, the children are going to be taken away and they're going to be put into foster care and nobody's going to see them again and, and not knowing later on down the track that the, the, the role of the Department of Human Services is actually to support the family. And if you tap into that support, then the whole family is supported. So there are lots of mistruths. And I think that it's just through this real life storytelling of, of people's experiences that we're going to change this rhetoric that, that we have and this silence and this stigma yeah. around, around it. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, in- when you look at it, really, it's not easy on anybody, is it? It's not easy on the kids. 
even the people going through it, the addiction itself, but also the family, friends, the community as well. So it it's impacts a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, tell us, is, is there in any of the, the studies that you've done, is there anything other than just drug addiction that can impact on the children's health and well-being as it relates to parent side of things? Is there any, uh, or has your focus all been in illicit drugs? Uh, it's all, it's been on illicit drugs, but also it's it's the things that um, sit around that lifestyle as well, Sam. It's so not having enough money, you know, spending all of the money on illicit drugs, and then not having any left to run the household. My my parents had to move out of their purchased property, the property they owned, to and and rent a house so that my my brother is partner and, and my nieces and nephews had a place to live because they fell so far behind in their rent that they they couldn't catch up. So do you know, it's, it's a whole range. Of, so, so housing instability, it's poverty, it's a whole range of, of different things. Health, that, nutrition, yeah. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so schools, for me, schools are, are doing these things anyway, but but giving schools like so that they, they're focusing on children's mental health, they're focusing on children's well-being, but often they're not actually given the skills and the know-how and the insight and the evidence base to actually implement these things properly. So that's sort of been the real, the, the real interest for me, just provisioning support for children who are from such households. Wendy, as we look forward, where do you think this research is going and and where would you like to see this go in relation to educators and the role they play? Yeah, I'd I'd like to, well, I'm in the process of applied for a large grant to expand the research. So I'd like to get clusters of schools working together and making this something that is on the agenda. So it's something that's spoken about We've removed the stigma and now we're getting down to planning our whole school approach to actually supporting these children and families. Also, I think that I think that if we expand it on a greater level, then the word will get out more readily rather than just isolated schools. So that's that's my hope. I've applied for a grant to expand the research and uh, build a cluster of schools and have that cluster approach to working and supporting young children and teachers. Yeah, it sounds like a great thing that you're doing and, and hopefully you get that grant and you can Go ahead and do that. Uh, Fingers crossed, Sam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we know resources are hard to get hold of, so good on you. Yeah. If people want to get in touch and hear more about this, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm working at Swinburne University of Technology in Hawthorne, Melbourne. Um, and if you Google my name, it's okay. my email address. I'm really happy for people to email and to engage in conversation. So so please, anyone who is working in this area who is interested, please feel free to reach out. It's sort of it's from a research perspective and, and telling these uh, narratives as well. It's quite an isolating experience. So I'd yeah. be really happy for people who, who've shared similar experiences to get into contact as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you see the power of, of you know, hearing about your journey and, and your brother and their family, which I had no idea about before this conversation, but you can see how as a result of that experience, it's driven your passion towards getting out there and getting something done about this. So 
I think you're inspiring with the action that you're taking and I think it's wonderful with what what you're up to and you just it's just a good reminder that you know this stuff is real and it's out there and it's impacting the kids of the yeah. future and the generations to come so well done Wendy and and you're a leader in this so congratulations Oh, thank you, Sam. I, I really appreciate you giving me an opportunity to speak about it today. And and often when I do start talking, I'm conscious of uh, startling people or, or unsettling people, but I think it's just important. We need to move beyond this uh, this politeness and this this sort of like fluffy type approach. We need to actually hear the realities and start speaking about them. And it's, I think for me, it's the only way we're going to move forward. Yeah, well, it's real, isn't it? And we need to acknowledge that it's there and it exists because sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it doesn't seem to be the answer. No, absolutely. But thank you, Sam. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Wendy. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.